Good evening, my friends, and welcome to Numa. I am, and shall always be, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finnerin. Thank you so very much for joining me. In this installment of Fall Asleep With Me, I'll be reading to you, dear friend and listener, Charlotte Bronte's 1847 Masterpiece, Jane Eyre. This book, to which we'll dedicate the next half hour or so, is sure to put you to sleep. Tomorrow morning, when you wake, I entreat you to subscribe to this channel and to share it with friends. If, my friend, you'd like me to read your favorite story in a gentle, sleepy, soporific tone of voice, don't hesitate to reach out. Send me an email at numa.finnerin.com at gmail.com and your story shall be read. Now, settle your mind. Turn down or off the brightness on your screen. Close your eyes. Concentrate on two things and two things only. Your breath, the rise and fall of your chest. And the sound of my voice. Chapter 23 
a splendid midsummer shone over England. Skies so pure, suns so radiant, as were then seen in long succession, seldom favor, even singly, our wave-girt land. It was as if a band of Italian days had come from the south, like a flock of glorious passenger birds, and lighted to rest them on the cliffs of Albion. The hay was all got in. The fields round Thornfield were green and shorn. The roads white and baked. The trees were in their dark prime hedge and wood, full-leaved and deeply tinted, contrasted well with the sunny hue of the cleared meadows between. On Midsummer Eve, Adele, weary with gathering wild strawberries and haylane half the day, had gone to bed with the sun. I watched her drop asleep, and when I left her, I sought the garden. It was now the sweetest hour of the twenty-four. Day its fervid fires had wasted, and dew fell cool on panting plain and scorched summit. Where the sun had gone down in simple state, pure of the pomp of clouds, spread a solemn purple, burning with the light of red jewel and furnace flame at one point, on one hill peak and extending high and wide, soft and still softer, over half heaven. The east had its own charm of fine, deep blue, and its own modest gem 
arising in solitary stars. Soon, it would boast the moon. But she was yet beneath the horizon. I walked a while on the pavement, but a subtle, well-known scent, that of a cigar, stole from some window. I saw the library casement open a handbreadth. I knew I might be watched thence, so I went apart into the orchard. No nook in the grounds more sheltered and more Eden-like. It was full of trees. It bloomed with flowers. A very high wall shut it out from the court on one side. On the other, a beach avenue screened it from the lawn. At the bottom was a sunk fence, its sole separation from lonely fields. A winding walk bordered with laurels and terminating in a giant horse chestnut circled at the base by a seat led down to the fence. Here one could wander unseen. While such honeydew fell, such silence reigned, such gloaming gathered, I felt as if I could haunt such shade forever. But in treading the flower and fruit parterres at the upper part of the enclosure, enticed there by the light, the now rising moon cast on this more open quarter, my step is stayed, not by sound, not by sight, but once more by a warning fragrance. Sweet briar and southern wood, jasmine, pink, and rose have long been yielding their evening sacrifice of incense. This new scent is neither of shrub nor flower. It is, I know it well, it is Mr. Rochester's cigar. I look round and listen. 
I see trees laden with ripening fruit. I hear a nightingale warbling in a wood half a mile off. No moving form is visible. No coming step audible. But that perfume increases. I must flee. I make for the wicket leading to the shrubbery, and I see Mr. Rochester entering. I step aside into the ivy recess. He will not stay long. He will soon return whence he came. And if I sit still, he will never see me. But no, even died is as pleasant to him as to me, and this antique garden as attractive. And he strolls on, now lifting the gooseberry tree branches to look at the fruit, large as plums, with which they are laden, now taking a ripe cherry from the wall now stooping towards a knot of flowers either to inhale their fragrance or to admire the dew beads on their petals. A great moth goes humming by me. It alights on a plant at Mr. Rochester's foot. He sees it and bends to examine it. Now he has his back towards me, thought I, and he is occupied too. Perhaps if I walk softly, I can slip away unnoticed. I trod on an edging of turf that the crackle of the pebbly gravel might not betray me. He was standing among the beds at a yard or two distant from where I had to pass. The moth apparently engaged him. I shall get by very well, I meditated. As I crossed his shadow, Thrown long over the garden by the moon, not yet risen high, he said quietly, without turning, Jane, come and look at this fellow. I had made no noise. He had not eyes behind. Could his shadow feel? I started at first, and then I approached him. Look at his wings, said he. He reminds me rather of a West Indian insect. One does not often see so large and gay a night rover in England. There, he has flown. 
moth roamed away. I was sheepishly retreating also, but Mr. Rochester followed me, and when we reached the wicket, he said, Turn back. On so lovely a night, it is a shame to sit in the house, and surely no one can wish to go to bed while sunset is thus at meeting with moonrise. It is one of my faults that, though my tongue is sometimes promptly enough at an answer, there are times when it sadly fails me in framing an excuse, and always the lapse occurs at some crisis, when a facile word or plausible pretext is specially wanted to get me out of painful embarrassment. I did not like to walk at this hour alone with Mr. Rochester in the shadowy orchard, but I could find no reason to allege for leaving him. I followed with lagging step and thoughts busily bent on discovering a means of extrication. But he himself looked so composed and so grave also. I became ashamed of feeling any confusion. The evil if evil existent awe or perspective there was, seemed to lie with me only. His mind was unconscious and quiet. Jane, he recommenced, as we entered the laurel walk and slowly strayed down in the direction of the sunk fence and the horse chestnut. Thornfield is a pleasant place in summer, is it not? Yes, sir. You must have become in some degree attached to the house. You who have an eye for natural beauties and a good deal of the organ of adhesiveness. I am attached to it indeed. And though I don't comprehend how it is, I perceive you have acquired a degree of regard for that foolish little child Adele, too, and even for simple Dame Fairfax. Yes, sir, in different ways. I have an affection for both. And would be sorry to part with them. Yes. Pity, he said, and sighed and paused. It is always the way of events in this life, he continued presently. No sooner 
Have you got settled in a pleasant resting place? Then a voice calls out to you to rise and move on, for the hour of repose is expired. Must I move on, sir? I asked. Must I leave Thornfield? I believe you must, Jane. I am sorry, Janet, but I believe indeed you must. This was a blow, but I did not let it prostrate me. Well, sir, I shall be ready when the order to march comes. It is come now. I must give it tonight. Then you are going to be married, sir. Exactly. Precisely. With your usual acuteness, you have hit the nail straight on the head. Soon, sir? Very soon, my... That is, Miss Eyre. And you'll remember, Jane, the first time I, or rumor, plainly intimated to you that it was my intention to put my old bachelor's neck into the sacred noose to enter into the holy estate of matrimony, to take Miss Ingram to my bosom. In short, She's an extensive armful, but that's not to the point. One can't have too much of such a very excellent thing as my beautiful Blanche. Well, as I was saying, listen to me, Jane. You're not turning your head to look after more moths, are you? That was only a lady clock, child, flying away home. I wish to remind you that it was you who first said to me, with that discretion I respect in you, with that foresight, prudence, and humility which befit your responsible and dependent position, that in case I married Miss Ingram, both you and little Adele had better trot forthwith. I pass over the sort of slur conveyed in this suggestion on the character of my beloved. Indeed, when you are far away, Janet, I'll try to forget it. I shall notice only its wisdom, which is such that I have made it my law of action. Adele must go to school. And you, Miss Eyre, must get a new situation. Yes, sir. I will advertise immediately. In meantime, I suppose, 
I was going to say. I suppose I may stay here. Till I find another shelter to betake myself to. But I stopped, feeling it would not do to risk a long sentence, for my voice was not quite under command. In about a month I hope to be a bridegroom, continued Mr. Rochester, and in the interim I shall myself look out for employment and an asylum for you. Thank you, sir. I am so sorry to give. Oh, no need to apologize. I consider that when a dependent does her duty as well as you have done yours, she has a sort of claim upon her employer for any little assistance he can conveniently render her. Indeed, I have already, through my future mother-in-law, heard of a place that I think will suit. It is to undertake the education of the five daughters of Mrs. Dionysius O'Gall of Bitternut Lodge, Connaught, Ireland. You'll like Ireland, I think. There's such warm-hearted people there, they say. It is a long way off, sir. No matter. A girl of your sense will not object to the voyage or the distance. Not the voyage, but the distance. And then the sea is a barrier. From what, Jane? From England and from Thornfield and, well, from you, sir. I said this almost involuntarily and with as little sanction of free will, my tears gushed out. I did not cry so as to be heard, however. I avoided sobbing. The thought of Miss O'Gall and Bitternut Lodge struck cold to my heart. And colder the thought of all the brine and foam, destined, as it seemed, to rush between me and the master at whose side I now walked. In the coldest, the remembrance of the wider ocean, wealth, caste, custom, intervened between me and what I naturally and inevitably loved. It is a long way, I again said. 
It is, to be sure. And when you get to Bitternut Lodge, Connaught, Ireland, I shall never see you again, Jane. That's morally certain. I never go over to Ireland, not having myself much of a fancy for the country. We have been good friends, Jane, have we not? Yes, sir. And when friends are on the eve of separation, they like to spend the little time that remains to them close to each other. Come, we'll talk over the voyage and the parting quietly, half an hour or so, while the stars enter into their shining life up in heaven yonder. Here is the chestnut tree. Here is the bench at its old roots. Come, we will sit there in peace tonight, though we should never more be destined to sit there together. He seated me and himself. It is a long way to Ireland, Janet, and I am sorry to send my little friend on such weary travels. But if I can't do better, how is it to be helped? Are you anything akin to me, do you think, Jane? I could risk no sort of answer by this time. My heart was still. Because, he said, I sometimes have a queer feeling with regard to you, especially when you are near as now. It is as if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly and inextricably knotted to a similar string situated in the corresponding quarter of your little frame. And if that boisterous channel and two hundred miles or so of land come broad between us. I am afraid that cord of communion will be snapped. And then I have a nervous notion I should take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, you'd forget me. With that, I wish you sweet dreams from Numa.